The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plaincrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm really pleased to be able to say that today we're talking with Peter Rowley. How are you, Peter? Hello, and thank you very much for uh, asking me to come on board. Um, you know, uh, if anybody wants to talk about aviation, I'm your man. I just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a, well, close to an obsession about it, um, being brought up by uh, an aviator myself. Well, you and I have got something in common then, because I'm quite obsessed with it as well. It's fantastic. <laughs> So um, tell me, how did uh, you, you said being brought up by uh, an aviator? How did your dad get into aviation? Well, in the 1940s, uh, he was turned down for service in the army uh, because of a stomach ulcer, and um, uh, and spent sort of like three or four years um, growing vegetables for the war effort. But he was a tall, strapping, good-looking young fellow, and felt all the time that people thought he was a conchie or something. So in uh, early 1943, he reapplied uh, for um, the armed forces, this time with the Air Force, uh, okay. and um, told lots of lies and got in and um, ended up being trained at uh, Woodburn and then up at Ardmore um, and uh, passed his wings exam and uh, um, went on this first tour of duty in P-40s, and then another two tours after that in Corsairs. Right, and your dad was also Peter, wasn't he? Correct, yes. 
Yes. And uh, so that first tour of P40s, what squadron was that with? Look, I'm, I'm a wee bit vague. I was trying to look it up before. 14, I think. Okay, okay. And uh, did he actually see any uh, air-to-air combat in the P-40s? He engaged 1-0, and the, the bloody thing turned on its back, and the pilot bailed out. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> he, he didn't think he had hit it. He fired at it. But from thereafter, um, because of the nature of 1943, the Americans were proceeding north, as you know, um, uh, the the uh, New Zealanders were left to mop up, as it was, because uh, basically the, the Japanese high command told their forces, uh, stay, fight to the death, you will not be resupplied. And so there was a lot of um, mainly ground attack, strafing, bombing, etc. from there on. Right, right. Okay. And then obviously that tour finished and he came back and... Um, converted onto the Corsairs. I've just got to quickly tell you a lovely story. When he came back from that first tour, he, uh, his parents lived in Invercargill, um, yep. and so he arrived back in Auckland and hopped on a train and uh, to go down to Wellington, then on the ferry, and then on the train again. But on the way down to uh, Wellington on the train, he was in his uniform, and he sat down in this, uh, this, this um, carriage, and uh, there was a woman, uh, an older woman opposite him. She said, oh, I see you're in the Air Force. He said, that's right. She said, oh, my son's in the Air Force, um, but he's, in, he's w- with the RAF in, in, uh, in England and um, doing rather well, I'm told. And my father, sort of just being polite, said, oh, well, what's his name? She said, Keith Park. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Doing rather well is right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is well after 1940, of course, when he was, I would say, the major and integral part of their victory. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm. Yeah, so um, was your father originally from Invercargill? Yes. Oh, right, okay. Now, something that, um, you know, before this interview, I, I did a little bit of research, and I see that you were born in Australia. So how does that, that work? No, out? that's so, wrong. That, that's wrong. Sure. That was looked at. Um, what do you call it? IMDb. 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 No, I, uh, I was born in Australia, and in, in 1941. I mean, excuse me. Yeah. I know I'm looking at it, but you know, getting on a bit. But no, that's. I was born in Timaru in 1952. Ah, right. Okay. Okay. My father had a company in Timaru called Oster Air Services. Okay, okay. Yep. But we'll get on to that in a minute after we finish with yes. the war thing, because there's a couple of things I want to tell you about that. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, he, first of all, the P-40 to him was the most beautiful aircraft from a pilot's, pilot's point of view that one could possibly fly. He said it was so well-balanced, so light in controls, um, just an absolute honey. And I remember um, at one of the first Wanaka shows, um, my dad was never really prone to much emotion, but he walked up with his walking stick to a, a P-40 that was parked there, put his hand on the fuselage and went. Wow. Um, then he went on to Corsairs. Now, he fell in love with the Corsair because it's a bit like if you're a, a bulldozer driver and you're given a, a, a D4 to do a job and you struggle and then you, someone comes up and gives you a D8, 
you know, you really do get the job done. He said that the Corsair was just a, an absolute, you know, uh, I mean, he was in love with his, there's a photograph that I will send you that he took because he had a box brownie wherever he went in the Pacific. And he took a photograph of a Corsair and underneath he's, he's written, um, um, my, my gorgeous girl plus death charge, you know. Uh, <laughs> my favorite girl, or gorgeous girl, I can't, can't quite remember, but he, um, he said the Corsair really, really did the job, especially in dive bombing. He did a lot of that. He used to drop 1,000 pounders. And um, uh, he said, but it was a bitch on takeoff because of the horrendous torque in view of the fact that the prop was 13 feet from tip to tip. Um, and uh, quite a few guys died uh, in training because they, you know, you've got to, got to introduce full opposite rudder, obviously. And then uh, as you pull, trickle on the power, he said, trickle on the power um, on takeoff. And you slowly sort of just as, as the, you know, the, the airflow increased and, and the aerodynamics uh, took effect, you know, you slowly trickled off the rudder. And um, once, once you're airborne, you're fine. Um, and, but he said once in the air, wow, you know, just that, that awesome power. And... Um, you know, and with, and those all those bloody uh, it was six six fifty cows, wasn't it? Um, and uh, he said that that um, you know that they were just awesome, amazing. Um, and he said it was it was quite easy to place your rounds where you wanted. And here's a little quick little story: two Japanese tanks were uh, encroaching upon a, an Australian position in Bougainville, and he and another chap were scrambled. Uh, to go and engage, and um, they, they uh, tried to attack. He, uh, he came in from the front as these two tanks were going up towards this ridge, and uh, the, the 50 cal rounds were bouncing off, and he knew full well that the armour from the rear was uh, much thinner. But uh, if he came in from the rear, he was then facing the, the Australian position, you see. Oh, right, yep, yep. But he told the other guy, he said, you bugger off, I'm going to give this a go. Because the Aussies only had Vickers machine guns, 303s, and a few grenades. There was no anti-tank weapons. Um, so he came in from behind, and he said, I don't know, he said, I must have fluked it. But I, these two tanks were going up this hill, and he said, I fired two bursts. And the first burst went into the, 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 the trailing tank, and the second burst went into the front tank, knocked them both out. And um, he took a photograph, and I'll send that to you as well. Um, and... Uh, uh, he got mentioned in dispatches, which has always amused me. You know, sort of, sort of. You can imagine two officers whispering quietly together. Then pilot officer rally, blah blah blah. blah you know. um, <laughs> so, as an afterthought, as they had a cup of tea or something. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, he was mentioned in dispatches for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's a quite a nice little story. Another another wonderful occurrence, and this this shows you the, the uh, maturity. This is the third tour of duty. By this time, he's starting to think, oh, for Christ's sake, this war is ridiculous. Yeah. And he was flying at about uh, 50 feet off the deck around this coral, um, sort of uh, like an, an atoll around this island. Yeah. Uh, he was at 50 feet. He said it was a beautiful day. He'd throttle right back. He's doing about 1,500 RPM, and that great big bloody... 
you know, I think it was a right cyclone, wasn't it? Or, yeah, I think yeah. it was, yeah. yeah. Um, and 4,000 feet was his wingman, and his job was if he spotted an enemy, he was to go click, click twice on his radio, uh, and at that spot, the, the man upstairs would dive down and strafe and do his business. Anyway, he was flying around. He said the canopy was back, beautiful day. He said it was hot as bloody Hades, beautiful, beautiful, white, white beach, blue, blue, blue sky, the, you know, the palm trees sort of waving in the breeze and things. It was just gorgeous. And he came around this beach, and there on the beach was a Japanese soldier, a lone Japanese soldier standing, staring out to sea with his Arasaka rifle over his shoulder and his funny, you know, those wee flapping hats they had. Yep. And um, staring out there. And as you know, of course, he was called Whispering Death because it was relatively quiet on the approach. And uh, coupled with the fact that the surf was rolling in, uh, the, the Jap didn't hear my father coming. My father made a decision not to go click-click. He said, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, for crying out loud, I should say. Um, uh, and as he came abreast, all of a sudden, the wee Jap bloody went, whoa, you know, saw him, this great big bloody fighter right there above the surf, right where the surf hits the beach. Yep. And my father's waved, and he said, the little, the little bugger just looked up and waved frantically back. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Dad just carried on, you know, and thought, I'd love to meet that little fella back in a bar in Tokyo one day and have a sucky with him, you know. This, yeah. this is ridiculous. And I thought there was a lovely, you know, a lovely indictment on sort of the, mat the growing maturity of a young 20-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. They were still kids, eh? From the, the, a lot of the guys flying these Corsairs were only 20, 21. Um, you know, that kind of mentality of the 20, 21-year-olds flying something like that. Well, they grew up real fast, and, and Dad had, uh, um, you know, for, here's another example. He was issued with a 38 Webley short. He said it was bloody hopeless. It'd bounce off a Jap uniform. Right. So uh, he went across to the American base and uh, with with some gin, and um, swapped some bottles of gin for a couple of forty-five automatics. And uh, his father worked in a bank in Invercargill, and in those days, tellers and people were issued with pistols. Yep. And um, his father gave him a little thirty-two Bayard automatic pistol. It was a tiny little thing. And my dad was seeing a uh, parachute seamstress in Wellington on leave, <laughs> and she she made him a little holster, and he had this under his on his leg under his flight uh, overalls, and I asked him many years, you know, you know, she years back, and I said, what what were you going to do with that? And he said, oh, that was for myself, because of the horrendous tales that came back about what the Japanese did to pilots. Right, right. And, you know, you thought, you know, 20 years old, 1920, and you're thinking like that, that little pistol was for myself. Yeah. That's quite sobering, isn't it? It is. Wow. Wow. You know. <laughs> Obviously, he must have been the type of person that would tell the stories over the years. Um, you know, a lot of them didn't tell the stories to their families, but it's quite interesting that you've heard all these stories and you can pass them on, which is great, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it is really... But the amazing thing about my father was that not only did he tell the stories, but as I said before, wherever he went, he took a box brownie camera. 
Right. And right. Um, there was, there's this wonderful photographic, uh, you know, history, you know, of his exploits. That's really rare because they weren't actually allowed to have the cameras. So um, that that's a really fantastic thing. Well, yeah, I've even got a photograph of them um, on the on that first tour of duty, heading out towards, um, you know, Lord Howe and Norfolk Island with the with the navigating Hudson at the lead. Oh right, yes, yep. I mean that right. He would have been clipped over the air roll if they'd known he was taking notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, uh, when obviously when the war was over, did he get straight into civil aviation uh, and carry on? You mentioned the. Uh, yeah. Aust- well, when he arrived back, um, he um, his, fa- his father expected him to go back into the bank because he he worked in the bank for a wee bit too. He, he worked in for, that's right. He did work in the bank for a little while, but he just oh, I think the flying bug had got him. So anyway, he borrowed eighteen pounds off his father and bought an aerial camera and uh, hired a tiger moth and he would fly over farmers properties and go as high as he possibly could until he started running short of bread and take aerial photographs of people's farms and you you, I mean I remember seeing them on farmers walls and um, and and uh, then he would fly down over the farmers house and drop leaflets saying ring this phone number if you want to uh, you know, photograph of your farm. Oh, right. And he started making a bit of money. Then he met my mother, who was a wee bit of an artist. So she told him, when you fly down over the homestead to drop the leaflets, could you take a photograph of the homestead and I'll touch that up with you? And, you know, remember those horrible black and white photographs that someone had come along and touched up with paint? Oh, yes, yeah. My mother, <laughs> That's was, right. my mother was responsible, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but anyway, um, these two little, uh, you know, genres of, of endeavour actually made them money. Okay. And then he got a phone call from a Mr. Innes at Halden Station. This is about 1947, I'd say. Yeah. And uh, there was a rabbit plague. And this Mr. Innes said, look, I need someone to spread poison carrots. And uh, and um, so, would you do it? And my father said, yeah, all right. So my father uh, got an engineer at uh, Levels Airport in Timaru to cut a hole in the floor of the front seat. Yeah. And he had a uh, a chap sit in there on a you know across the hole with a sugar sack. Right, right. Full of arsenic-laced carrots. <laughs> And they would uh, spread those. And he was the first person in New Zealand to drop poison carrots from the air. Oh, wow. And, okay. um, but uh, here's a quick, a quick uh, little sort of side to that. Uh, at the end of the day, they would uh, drape the sugar sacks over the uh, fence for them to dry. Because yep. it was a, a wet mix. Yep. Uh, the first trip in the morning, Father would yell through the little you know, uh, the little voice thing in the tiger, let them go! And the first shaking of the sack, they'd both be enveloped with a wee wee bit of dust. Okay. Now, arsenic, as you know, speeds the heart up until uh, until it pops its rivets. Yep, yep, yep. Well, by the time they landed for morning tea, 
The bad thing about this market, you have to get a little bit of 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 a little um, <laughs> the speed that is, uh, yeah. So, so that was a funny little story. But anyway, he he went on from there, and then they started Oster Air Services, based in Timaru, um, Tiger Moths, then uh, um, Osters, and he said he made the mistake of buying a Taylor Craft as well, which was a heap of junk. Um, but he was uh, he had the world record for hours in a in a an Oster. Okay, and. Uh, he uh, um, he said if he ever wrote a book about ag flying in an Oster, he said the title of the book would be uh, Throttle Fully Forward and Slightly Bent. <laughs> Great title. <laughs> and um, I had some lovely stories in the, about the Osters uh, flying in the Mackenzie country and running out of fuel. Um and uh, and 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 the old gypsy major spluttering, and he'd pull forward, and a wee bit of fuel grab with gravity feed into the engine, blah, 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 pick up again, and he just got over this ridge, and uh, yeah, it stopped, and he glided in and landed in the paddock, and an old fella came past in a horse and cart. She was like, "What would you be doing away out in the middle of nowhere in that thing?" Father said, "I need a bit of fuel." He said, "Oh, well, I better go and get you some." I'll I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) 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 Yeah, um, lovely, lovely stuff. Um, Then in uh, 1957, I think it was, he um, sold his share of the business in Australia Services and bought Aerial Sewing Canterbury Limited in Amberley, just north of Christchurch. Okay, yes, yep, yep. Uh, and uh, um, still with osters and things, and I've got a, I've got a couple of three photographs I can send you that. And then um, um, the 180 arrived. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, I think he went from osters to uh, 180. Yeah. And um, I can, re- I can remember I was staying with my grandparents and uh, one of his pilots by the name of Ken Eden flew in. My grandparents lived in Lake Harwear Flat in Otago. And I remember this 180 coming in and landing and and uh, picked me up to take me over to the West Coast where my father was uh, had an operation over there, the Bell Hill block. And uh, this guy was, I, w- I was only about eight years old and this Ken Eden fellow had an RAF moustache and this brand new sparkling uh, aeroplane, and I was I was in heaven. Oh, here's here's a quick 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 one, Dave. Yeah, yeah. Um, my, my dad uh, had a one one of the Osters. He uh, he there was no hopper, and it was his co- company vehicle basically. Okay. And he yeah, used yeah. to use that to fly around farmers' properties to to discuss their um, you know next year's fertilizer requirements and so on. Yep. Uh, always with a bottle of scotch, of course, in those days. And uh, my father used to ring up the uh, the uh, proprietor of the Tyree pub and say, could you open the gate? 
and uh, my father would fly and land in the paddock and he'd taxi through the gate, stop at the road, let the traffic go past and then taxi across the road and into the car park. <laughs> now, in those, days, awesome. in those days, as you know, kids weren't allowed in pubs and so yep. if you can remember, the, the, the big thing for us was a glass of, uh, of raspberry drink in, the, in the, oh, yep. the back of the car. Well, I was pin high. You can imagine it. There were other kids and vehicles, old beat-up Land Rovers, Chevs and, and so on, and, you know, an Oster, another beat-up Land Rover, another old Chev and, a, you know, a Dodge truck. Um, and all these kids were just sort of like pressed up against the windows of these vehicles looking at this young Peter Rowley sitting in the back of an aeroplane in a car park. And I'll never forget that, you know. And I just, I just thought I was made. I was yeah. number one. That's awesome. And, of course, Dad would come out sometime later, shickered, as they used to say back then, <laughs> hop on the plane, how are you going, Pete? Right, we're off. Race yourself, young fella. And, you know, cross the road we'd go, into the paddock, and <laughs> off we'd go. <laughs> Oh, man. you just never get away with it now, would you? Oh, God, no. God, no. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, when he moved to uh, uh, Amberley with Aerial Sewing Canterbury Limited, he basically stopped flying because someone needed to fly the desk yep. as the business was growing. And uh, so then along came the, the Piper Pawnee. Oh, yes, yep, yep. Uh, then the, the Ag Wagon, Cessna Ag Wagon, so he's using those. Um, then he went on to uh, uh, Air Commander Snow, uh, um, yeah, Air Commander Snow and Air Commander Thrush, yep. which were, that could carry a, a ton, and they had the same engine as the Harvard. Oh, right, okay. Big radial. Um, then he got a phone call from from a um, a Chinese aircraft bloke uh, uh, who's, who said, would you be interested in this, this nine Fletcher, these new Fletcher planes? My father just bought two, I think, but he said, there's nine of these Fletchers sitting in the desert in Iraq. The tenth one had crashed, killing Prince Halakh Mahalad, or whatever his name was. Yeah, and the the um, the Islamic Church had put a, a thing on the planes and said nobody's allowed to fly them. Oh right. So that, as you can imagine, as you know, they're sitting in a desert. They're pristine. Yeah, yeah. And they've been sitting there for about two years, apparently. Okay. So my father sent an engineer over to check them out, and the engineer came back and said, "Yep, could could purchase planes for the price of engines alone." Um need 10,000 US degrees palms, stop, uh, the old telegram days. Yeah, yeah. And so my father um, bought these planes and he kept four or five for himself and sold the rest to Australia. Oh, right, okay. And um, So w w were they ferried back? Um, no, no, taken apart and um, on, you know, putting containers on sea. And oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, and then and then onwards and I think he when 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 he sold the company he had something like fourteen Fletchers and um, 
20 plus trucks and he had also had an engineering business that made the loaders and um, you know uh, and he went he went to all the staff and said okay uh, you know I'm going to sell the business you have the first you know right of refusal and basically the, the staff in each area you know in Canterbury Nelson Westport Hokitika bought the units bought the aircraft he sold the rest and and retired, but he kept. There's a photograph I sent you of him. He kept. He kept a Piper Cub. Right. Because that right. that was another thing. When Roger Douglas took away the subsidies, he got rid of the uh, uh, the jet the jet ranges of using for spraying, and okay. um, to bring the price down to the farmer and insurance costs and things, he he was responsible for uh, the the price raising of Piper Cubs because they became a useful uh, spray machine. Ah, oh, right. Right, okay. So he was sort of uh, this the South Island equivalent of Aussie James or Robertson Air Service, that, that sort of thing. He had quite a big coverage and quite a big fleet by the sound of things. Yeah, he did. And he, he also had the uh, Dothostroma forestry contracts too uh, in the North Island um, okay. and using air commanders in that, in, in that area. But yeah, he was pre- pretty much of a, a pioneer down there and, um, you know... Uh, it's, it was a, it was an amazing childhood to be brought up with all that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for for you, it must have just been natural to um, have aircraft around and pilots around, and it's it's obvious why you're such a passionate uh, aviation enthusiast, I guess. It is. I mean, uh, you know, as as a kid, being in an aeroplane a lot. You know, we in the holidays we used to uh, fly into remote areas of Southland and things and fly into uh, Martins Bay into rough little white baiters airstrips and things and with, you know, fishing rods and rifles and packs and bits and bobs and, you know, um, I I remember a famous guy, Bill Hewitt, or infamous I should say, um, he was was amazing. He he had a 180 and a bit of a business down there in Gore and he was a friend of my father's but a hopeless alcoholic. And um, okay. I, I remember we were all down in um, Gore, and or my my father and my two brothers, and uh, we deci- and my father decided that he would get Bill to fly us down, and we drove down to Gore, and then fly us into this remote strip in Martins Bay, and we were waiting um, on the day for for uh, Bill to come and pick us up in the 180, and waiting, 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 and it took us about an hour to walk from the huts to the airstrip. Anyway, we're waiting. And finally, the weather almost, you know, was just starting to clag in a bit, and so Dad said, oh, well, he's obviously not coming. Let's walk back. And we started walking, and whoa, this bloody 180 roared over the top of us. And so we walked back to the airstrip, and the 180 landed and went down to the other end of the airstrip, and sat there, and just sat there. And we go, what the, why doesn't he turn around taxi back, pick us up? So we walked all the way down to this airstrip, the end of this airstrip. And as we got there, he fell out of the 180 in a wedding suit. <laughs> and he'd been at a, at a reception and all of a sudden remembered, oh, very crikey, oh, the, the rallies, oh, crops. I've been at the crack and see you, fellas. And flew and drunk. And uh, so Dad flew, flew us out, you know, with yeah. this fella, but he, you know, my two brothers in the hopper, and 
It was fantastic adventures. It was extraordinary. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, so, um, uh, you know, I remember when I did my first, you know, go at starting my license, and my dad would sit me down and talk to me and say, well, my best advice, I've got a bit of advice for you, Peter, and sit down and listen. Yes, Dad. Firstly, flying is all about money and airspeed and in that order. <laughs> yes, Dad. Secondly, a bit of advice is, Always listen to experience, because they're still around. Yes, Dad. And always remember, there are no old, bold pilots. They're just old pilots. <laughs> yes, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> if I hear anything, any skylarking, I'll clip you. <laughs> yes, Dad. <laughs> so, um, yes, I started my flying uh, uh, to get my PPL at the Canterbury Air Pub. Did my first okay. solo on the day the Pope flew into Christchurch, so I knew I was in the right spot. Right, right. Okay. And uh, so, how how old were you when you started? Oh, look, I was I was into my thirties. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Um, late thirties. Yep. Yeah. So you would have already been a well-known actor by then, I suppose. Yes, yes, I was. Uh, old um, a week of it, and then Billy T. Jones and all that. Yep. 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 Yeah, and we we sort of we we can't sort of brush over that part of your life as well. I mean, that must have been quite an, an amazing life as well, well. I can remember telling Dad. He said that when I left school, he said, "Well, what are you going to do? Are you going to because you wanted me to join the company and drive around in a dusty old Holden with a whip area and talking to farmers about fertilizer." Um, and I just you know I went to this school which was very big in the theatre and drama, and I just got the bug there as well. So. Um, I said to him, I want to be an actor, and he looked at me as he was packing his Peterson pipe, and he said, I'm your father, and I have to ask you this, are you a homosexual? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, I went round the desk and put my arm around his neck, and he said, and in a camp voice, said, of course not, Dad. He said, oh, sit down, you stupid bugger. <laughs> And uh, so, I, yeah, I joined the court theatre in Christchurch and then uh, got picked for a TV series called A Week of It. And, you know, the rest is uh, sort of history. I just kept on doing it. And, um, and it's funny, when I go, I've, I've quite often had people, because I've got locked into comedy, but I've quite often had passengers say to me when I fly, they, they always land and they always say to me, you're not very funny up there, are you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, there are systems that you must adhere to, and so, you know, focusing is probably paramount. Yeah. yeah. So, one thing that we um, we brushed on last night when we were talking um, is about how Billy T. James was also a pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um, he became totally sort of... Because uh, we, we used to... Because um, I, I was right into guns back then too, and so he became into guns, and because I took him flying once and that, and then he decided he wanted to get his helicopter flight, a pilot's license. And as I said to you, we used to have these long discussions because he was right into the Vietnam War. He was a bit of a Yankee file. He really liked America and he liked the Vietnam War and all that sort of carry on. And, um, and uh, as I said, Red Chicken Hawk and, and um, the Huey pilots and what they got up to and all that. And so he decided to do it, yeah. I don't think he got that far. Um, 
I'm not quite sure how many hours he did. It could have been about 15 to 20 hours or something in choppers. Uh, oh, right, okay. Yep, he yep. Didn't, I don't think he got his license. But he was on the way there, and then, as you know, his health started to... Because he died young, he was only 41. Yeah, yes. Tragic. Oh, it's just unbelievable. I was just devastated. Yeah. Devastated. Because he was telling everybody as well that he was fine. Right, right. Right till yeah. the end, you know. Well, um, one of the sketches that I remember you guys doing in the Billy to James show was you were at Ohakia with the Skyhawks. Can you tell me about that? I I always liked, um, I said to Billy one day, you know how when people talk on the radio, this is Delta X-Ray Juliet, uh, you know, down one to three five. And um, well, I was doing that one day and I, and I, and he, if Billy was so famous that he, he could ask our government, our armed forces for support. <laughs> and, and they would give it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I wrote the sketch. I said, what about if we, you know, you, you, you're coming into land and you can hear the radio and everything, and then when people sort of alighted from these skyhawks and they, they, they still wanted to sound the same, you know, they, pinch, <laughs> they pinched their noses and, and talked like they were still on the radio. And, right, you know, let's go over and have a cup of tea. Right, yeah. And uh, it's right. So we went to a hut here, and, and uh, they let us dress up in their suits and things, as you know. And, and um, we just filmed a couple of jets coming in anyway, and uh, did the voiceover on that. And, and then when we got out of the jets, we sort of walked across the tarmac to to you know the building, talking the, the same way as they do on the radio. And people seem to like it. <laughs> it's a classic. <laughs> Uh, did they ever give you? Did they give you a, a flight in the two seats? No, no, ah, no, no, no. That's ah. a um, <laughs> um, but uh, and we and the same thing with the. Uh, I wrote the sketch for the Lancaster about the keys. You know, I mean, it was pretty lame, sort of a joke. But I thought well, it was quite funny because a they never scrambled Lancasters, and b they. Um, I don't. I don't <laughs> yeah. think they sort of. You know, it was just ridiculous. Have you got the keys? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but one, one thing I must say that we really pushed for was authenticity in everything we did. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I got into trouble with TVNZ on a number of occasions because, you know, their wardrobe or art department delivered bullshit. So, you know, we said, no, no, that's not the right rifle. That The British soldier wouldn't have that rifle. He'd have that. Or... You know, no, that's not the right overalls. We want these overalls. And more often than not, I would, because of my interest in firearms, I knew people that had collections. And, you know, um, I, I would organise props, which was unheard of. You know, actors didn't do that. You know, it was... And so we'd organise stuff ourselves, uh, which was a breakthrough. But as I say, I became very unpopular to me oh, okay. But I think if, you know, like, for instance, did Captain Cook coming ashore stuff, I insisted on authentic uniforms and the Maori to be dressed authentically and all that sort of thing. Because when we arrived, the, the wardrobe department had sort of comedy shit, you know, like it was it, it was it was vaudevillian, right? Spinning bow ties and pink hats and crap. And I said, no, no, it's got to be absolutely authentic to make the comedy work. Yeah, we don't, we don't exactly. have to look funny; just let the words and the situation be fun. 
and and I think that's why it's become iconic and has so many hits on YouTube because we you know had high production values. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And um, just getting back to your own flying, um, what have you, you know, you, you, you said that you were flying at Canterbury Air Club. Um, what have you flown through the progression of your flying life? Well, I've got about 670 hours, I think it is, and, and a bit more. It's been a while since I looked at my logbook. I haven't flown for a while. The last time I flew was two years ago. Um, and... Uh, um, what happened was in, in 2005 I had a bit of a cardiac event and uh, lost my PPL well you know you get to lifetime thing but it stopped being current so I did all the tests got it back and they said but you're, not, you're, you're only allowed to fly solo and not over a built up area right. so oh. so one day um, I, I went over to Giovanni Nostrini's uh, hangar in Ardmore and where he's got the technams. And um, I went for a flyer with Anna King, who's now Anna Wakeland, I think. And um, okay. she was lovely. Anyway, I took, I went flying this little technam, and all my flying's been done. I mean, I was rated in um, uh, Cherokees, uh, Piper Cub, um, 172, 206, uh, and you know, did all my flying in those machines. Now I went flying this little Technam, and I just fell in love with it because it was so light and nimble, and um, I could carry a passenger on, on you know, and and uh, it went as fast as those machines, if not a little bit faster sometimes. Right. Especially when I got into the Sierra um, with the laminar flow wing. But I, I just fell in love with those machines, and they were cheap, 15 litres an hour, you know, uh, power-to-weight ratio, uh, efficiency, modern, you know, trim on the stick, couple of buttons, bingo, away I go. And uh, so I've, I've done about 80 hours in Technams now. Um, okay. And basically that's how I did, you know, had to end up really. Uh, I could get, a, I think I could get a recreational license and fly uh, heavy machines. Is that, is that, that's right, isn't it? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not actually a pilot, Peter, so I'm just an enthusiast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I could, I think I could, but I'm not interested. Some of these ultralights, you know, forget the days of microlights with rags and wires. Some of these new carbon fiber things are very slick. Um, I also must say, flying a light aircraft, um, I tested the boundaries a wee bit by flying in rather difficult climactic conditions. But I remember my dad once saying, Remember, the air is like water, you know, so treat it as such, it flows. And so, you know, flying into wind, wind down, in wind, in winds, you know, crosswind landings, all that sort of thing. I did a lot of strip flying. I used to live on Waiheke Island, and I used to fly in and out of Stony Ridge Airstrip. And, oh, yes. Um, whoa, you know, I mean, even motor holding stopped their pilots from going in there. I finished, I finished my training, actually on uh, Stony Ridge Airstrip with a delightful gentleman by the name of George Richardson, who was a, an X-747 captain. And um, he was marvellous. And, and and also Dad taught me a bit about strip flying because of agricultural aviation. Like, if you're on the finals and you're committed, you're going in, there's a bit of wind, you want to get down on the deck, use your power, 
and on flare out, cut the power off and put the flaps up immediately, 10 knots will just just go and you're on. You're on the deck. Bang. Um, and uh, so, you know, I learned, learned a lot of that stuff. Um, and, uh, oh, here's a quick story. My father was asked to take a, a United States Navy captain of an aircraft carrier up to an agricultural uh, fl a flight unit flying out of a strip on uh, Banks Peninsula. And it was one of those strips that it was 45 degrees with a little ledge at the top where the loader was. And um, my father took, drove him up there in his car and, and the plane was away doing its thing. And, and my father got out of the car and he said, well, where's the strip? I said, where's the strip, Peter? And my father said, you're standing on it. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy went, oh, my God, these guys would make great flat top pilots. Oh, wow. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it that, you know, people were flying off these these just unbelievable sort of, you know, bloody angled airstrips. And, and uh, yeah, so, so I think agricultural aviation helped my flying a lot. And besides, I'm still alive. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, so, so um, anything else you'd like to... Do you want to talk about your jet flights that you've had oh, in the couple of days? Sure, mighty, sure, How lucky am I? See, what I did was I came up with this idea. I wanted to do a documentary on women in aviation, not the history of women, but women now. You know, because I did a lot of research. I went online and just started looking around the world at these extraordinary places where women are downtrodden, like Pakistan. There's mid jet fighter pilots. Uh, um, um, bush pilots in Canada, uh, um, RAF uh, Apache gunship pilots, uh, uh, just the list goes on and on and on, what these women are doing. It's amazing. So I went to Renegade Films and I said, um, look, I've got this idea. And they said, yeah, we've got no money, uh, but go and do a, a three-minute pilot, so to speak. So I did. And I just got on the blower and uh, I spoke to the Australian Women's Aviation Association um, I, I rang a local helicopter company and a woman answered the phone. I said, look, I, I, I want to do this pilot and I'd love to get a woman helicopter pilot. Do you know one? And the woman said, yes, I am. And and I just just things like that just started happening. And so, you know, she said, well, what do you need? And I said, well, this, this uh, iconic female pilot from New Zealand by the name of Louisa Choppy Patterson, who owns her own helicopter company in Queenstown, um, she, she's going to front the show. And, and this woman at Moorabbin Airport said, well, what do you mean? And I said, oh, I wanted just you to be interviewed by a helicopter and a tarmac. She said, no, no, I'll do more than that. I'll fly you all over to, from Moorabbin over to a, a helipad on the Yarra River. And I'm like, what? You know, and I said, well, I've got no money. She said, no, it doesn't matter. And I ended up getting six aircraft, six pilots all converging on the same place. Um, Renegade gave me a whole bunch of GoPro cameras and, um, uh, you know, we shot this pilot. Uh, Renegade Films took the, uh, the pilot I shot to the Cannes Business sort of Festival called IPCOM and uh, people like Warner Brothers, Discovery Channel, and quite a few other people went, oh, yeah, we like this. So, um, you know, uh, this may happen this year now that I may be directing this uh, documentary. Now, one of the guys there knew this pilot who's got a Saimashetti jet. And he said, oh, you, oh, you should go and meet this guy. So I'm going to meet this guy. Well, he's now my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Not because he's got a jet mind, um, 
but uh, you know, we became good buddies, and uh, I, you know, I took my camera. I don't know if you've seen my video, but um, I took my camera a few, on a few occasions, and uh, and um, it's just an extraordinary experience because I've never been in a light jet before. And um, he, his name is Stephen Gale. He's an extraordinary guy. He's uh, got a electronics company, and um, and uh, he saw this uh, Sonashiti jet for sale on 250,000 bucks. Um, uh, Ex-Singapore Air Force, so he snaffled it, got rated, uh, and is now training to do air shows. Um, and, and it's a beautiful little jet with a, uh, uh, um, a Pratt & Whitney Canada uh, jet engine in it. And um, it uh, develops 2,500 pounds of thrust. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, I think it's got a top speed of 600 plus uh, knots. Uh, we've been trucking around about 380, 400 knots. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's just awesome, an awesome experience. And so privileged I am to, to be, uh, you know, to be able to get the rides that I've got so far. That sounds great, and your documentary sounds fantastic. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm flying to Christchurch on Wednesday. Um, we fly um, to to see a friend of mine, and then down to Queenstown to link up with Louisa. Um, in fact, you should um, uh, YouTube uh, over the top helicopters, and you'll see her operation there. It's just sensational. She's got Eurocopters, and um, and she's brilliant on camera. Uh, she's just a natural, and she's she's the most remarkable woman. All these Australians said, "Jesus, mate, where did you find her? She's bloody, <laughs> she's bloody cracker, mate. Yeah, you know, <laughs> they're all raving about her. Um, yeah, and she's just such a delightful person. So I'm going down there to do a bit of a recce, uh, take my camera. Um, you know, the other, the other great thing is she knows all the pilots down there who have L39 jets, P51s, etc., etc. So uh, the first episode. Um, when it goes ahead, uh, is going to going to be entirely shot in Queenstown, and then we're off around the world to find other women doing their thing, and 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 men too who have airplanes she wants to uh, become familiar with. Right, right. Well, that's fantastic. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. We'll certainly look out for that one when it's uh, all produced. And um, good luck with it. Thank you very much, Dave. And do you get back to New Zealand very often these days? Because you live in Australia, obviously. Yeah, I do. No, not very much. But as I said, I'm back on Wednesday, which I'm very excited yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Okay, then. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, and, and it's a huge privilege for me to, to talk to one of my childhood heroes from the television. Uh -huh. so I've oh, really look, enjoyed this. I'm privileged, too. Thank you very much for even be, uh, showing any interest. I appreciate it. Thank you. Not a problem. Not a problem. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, you too. See you later. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hope.